Well, it's my great pleasure to introduce this evening uh, Professor Gilles Capel, the visiting Philippe Romain Chair of History and International Affairs at LSE Ideas and Professor and Chair of Middle East and Mediterranean Studies at Sciences Po Paris. Professor Capel has a long and distinguished record of publications on Islam and the Middle East. Books include uh, Jihad, the Trail of Political Islam, The War for Muslim Minds, Al-Qaeda in its own words, um, and Beyond Terror and Martyrdom, the Future of the Middle East. Just before introducing Professor Capel's uh, talk this evening on Barack Obama and the Muslim world, I'd just like to take the opportunity to pay tribute to the contribution he's made uh, this year as the visiting Philippe Romain Chair at LSE Ideas. Professor Capel has undertaken what we might term a sort of civilizing mission here in London. Uh, his generous provision of foie gras and sauterne to the staff at LSE Ideas has been uh, much appreciated, as have his attempts to reintroduce the long-vanished art of lunching. Um, and I think Gilles has also taken the opportunity himself to remind us that there is indeed a, um, a superior civilization on the, uh, the other side of the channel in these respects. Um, Gilles has also done, on a more serious note, much to invigorate the study of the uh, Middle East um, at the LSE this session, not least through the fortnightly seminars he's offered uh, to master's students and also, to, also through his three earlier public lectures. Uh, in this series. Well, tonight in his lecture on Barack Obama and the Muslim world, um, Gilles will be treating a theme which has been prominent uh, in his most recent work. During the final stages of the Bush administration, he developed the thesis of a global clash between two competing grand narratives, that of the American neoconservatives and that of the jihadists. Both neoconservatives and jihadists have suffered a setback, arguably, uh, since the advent of the Obama administration. But whether Obama himself has managed to develop a new grand narrative of his own uh, must be very much, I think, open to question. Indeed, let me suggest, perhaps slightly provocatively, that in re respect of the core conflict between Palestine and Israel in the region, uh, the grand narrative so far has been that of the grand old Duke of York, who marched his men and women indeed up to the top of the hill and then marched them down again. But it's not for me to steal uh, Professor Capel's thunder on this topic. Let me now invite him to offer his own thoughts on Barack Obama and the Muslim world. Professor Capel. Well, thank you very much, uh, Nick, for, uh, Nigel, sorry. I mean, uh, doesn't start well <laughs> for this very kind introduction. Um, um, it was well. I brought sauterne once uh, only for Christmas, and other uh, don't tell that to everyone because they're go well. Thank you, but they're they're going to ask for more. Um, uh, it's uh, this is definitely the, the the last in a series of of, of public lectures. It's the, the last one. I'm, I'm I will uh, I will long then when they're over, but that's that's life. I will go back to the other uncivilized part of the channel where I do not lecture at Sciences Po. So, you see. and uh, no, they're all fed up with him. They've heard me so many times that they are not interested anymore. Um, the um, 
As you, I, I would just, I would like to just to pick up in what you um, you just uh, said when you mentioned that the um, uh, the the war on terror between the Bush administration and Al Qaeda was to a large extent a war of narratives, and uh, for the the Bush administration. Uh, what was at stake was to reshuffle the cards, the deck of cards in the in the Middle East, so that what they said was a democratic Middle East would take place. Their diagnosis of the um, of the problems of the Middle East and of terrorism, which was the the symptom they had to to fight after 9/11 was that the reason for uh, terrorism was um, the fact that there was no democracy, there was no pluralism, that the Middle East region was clogged with authoritarian regimes. Some of them had been actually helped and put in place by the US and previous American administrations. That this absence of democracy and, plura and pluralism led to violent forms of opposition that was captured by radical Islamist discourse, and that the only way the only way to get rid of this violent Islamist discourse and this violent Islamist action that ultimately led to uh, 9/11 was to deal not only with the symptoms i.e. Uh, tracking down al-Qaeda and killing, if possible, Osama bin Laden, but it also had to do with the treatment of the causes of what uh, uh, MDs call the etiology, if I'm not mistaken. And in order to do so, they had to get rid of the authoritarian regimes and sort of... Uh, Propel, if I may say so, um, democratization in a sort of top-down movement. Now, the problem is that you had many choices as of uh, which bad regime to start with, because they were all bad, and uh, they decided that Saddam Hussein was the ideal culprit or the perfect suspect for a number of reasons. And uh, this is how the war on terror, which originally was aimed at destroying uh, Osama bin Laden and uh, the Al-Qaeda people, after uh, they uh, went to, um, to Afghanistan, got rid of the Taliban for a while, as we now know in retrospect, and not forever, fell short of uh, reaching out to uh, Osama bin Laden and the troops and the military effort was um, diverted towards another objective which was Iraq. Removing Saddam Hussein and putting a, let's use inverted commas here, democracy in its stead would be the way for uh, 
the radical change in the Middle East, something that would deprive the radicals of their breathing space. And uh, majority in the positions would um, have um, a sort of um, civilized uh, debates like Democrats and Republicans, the, which is a kind akin to uh, happiness in uh, the vision of the world. And, um, and that's it. On the side, this new Iraq would be, of course, a country that would hold no major grudge against the State of Israel and um, allow for the peaceful integration of Israel in the Middle East, an Israel that was at the time under the control of, Benyam, of, uh, sorry, of Ariel Sharon and that made no real effort, to say the least, to come at peace with the Palestinians. So this was a sort of, if I may say, a double narrative. One uh, that was ad extra, that is to say, we're going to bring democracy to the region, and this is the way to get rid of terrorism, ultimately. And the other one, which was sort of more ad intra, which aimed at reshuffling the area so as to bring about uh, a power system in Iraq that would definitely unsettle or unbalance uh, the balance of power in the, in the region and have one major Arab state uh, side with not only the U.S., but also with U.S. policy vis-à-vis -vis Israel. And this was based on the belief in some uh, circles in the Beltway that Khomeinism was a historical accident in Shiism, and that Shias held no grudge really against Israel that there was a major resemblance between the fate of Jews and the fate of Shias, both oppressed minorities in the region, and that a majority Shia pro-American government in Iraq would have a sort of uh, domino effect, a virtuous domino effect in Iran and that Iranian civil society, a thriving Iranian society, uh, civil society that would be galvanized by the Iraqi example would topple the, re the Mullah regime just like that. Now, this of course did not go as, uh, as expected as you, and you all know the, the end of the story, or not the end, but at least the present state of the story. This was, the, this was the legacy that Obama had when he became president and against which he had uh, spoken from the very inception. And uh, if you remember, he was one of the few senators 
who had voted against the war in Iraq. And uh, this is probably something, among many things, for which American voters gave him credit. And so he had to restructure, rethink, rephrase a whole new narrative of uh, American policy in the Middle East and in the Muslim world. And we shall see later why there was some confusion between the two terms and whether this confusion was, uh, was leading him anywhere or nowhere. And this was a major challenge for him. But before we start to analyze this challenge from an, an American point of view, if I may say so, we have to keep in mind, and I am not sure that his advisors kept that in mind sufficiently, that the neocon Bush fis narrative functioned in a pair with the other, the opposite narrative, the Al-Qaeda narrative, for which America was the symbol of all evil, had to be attacked and ultimately destroyed by all means, that suicide attacks that they called martyrdom operations against American, Israeli, Western, and apostate regimes, as they call the rulers of the Muslim world, were legitimate, and that there were no compromise whatsoever to be, to be made with the West. And as I mentioned in uh, earlier lectures, but not all of you may have attended them, one of the reasons why the Al-Qaeda ideologues, such as uh, Dr. Ayman Zawahiri, the Egyptian uh, MD, who's the real brains within uh, Al-Qaeda, uh, Osama bin Laden is, uh, is uh, more of a logo, if you wish, or was more than a logo because we don't see much of him anymore than a thinker. One of the main reasons why Al-Qaeda focused on America on 9-11 was that they had considered in retrospect that all the guerrillas that they waged in the 1990s whether it be in Algeria, in Egypt, in Bosnia, and that had been modeled on the Afghan jihad of the 1990s, had led to a political failure. Why was that? Because the so-called vanguard of the um, Islamist movement had failed to mobilize the masses. As opposed to that, in the same decade of the 1990s, two movements had 
to a large extent, managed to build a grassroots constituency. And those movements were not in the, in the Afghan uh, mystique, if you want. They, were, they had no links with the Al-Qaeda people or with the uh, uh, Arab-Afghan veterans. One was Hezbollah, a Shia group in Lebanon that had managed to uh, oust Israel from Lebanon in May 2000. The Israelis, for a number of reasons, decided to pull out. Um, Ehud Barak decided to pull out from Lebanon in May 2000, maybe because he thought that uh, he did not need to, uh, to be there anymore because he had electronic equipment or what have you, but this was perceived in the Arab world and the Muslim world at large as the first Arab victory against Israel. And also Hezbollah managed to build a major constituency, not only amongst the Shiite population of Lebanon, but also at the time within Lebanon per se, because it sort of embodied resistance to Israel. And, well, it was largely fueled by monies coming from both the Iranian uh, treasury and by donation from uh, Shiites who had uh, gone to Western Africa and started businesses there under the, the French mandate over Lebanon, while Western Africa was a French colony back uh, in the first interwar period of the 20th century. And the other movement that had been, to a large extent, successful in the 1980s and the beginning of the, 19, in the, of the 2000s was Hamas. Hamas had managed to, emerged, to emerge as an Islamic mass movement during the first Intifada. Then, during the period the first period of the Oslo process from 1994 to 1999, early 2000, had successfully managed to derail the Oslo peace process thanks to the use of suicide attacks or martyrdom operations, if you wish, inspired largely by the same operations that had been implemented by Hezbollah in Lebanon against the Israelis. And finally, the second intifada that started in September 2000 after Ariel Sharon uh, had his uh, health walk on the uh, tem mount, tem um, Temple Mount or the Haram al-Sharif, as you want to call it, um, was also very successful for Hamas because they managed to marginalize Yasser Arafat and the PLO and to become, they would become later, the, uh, the leaders of the Palestinian movement. All that made the Al-Qaeda leadership believe that they should change strategy, that they should um, surf on the uh, 
uh, on the suicide bombings or on the uh, martyrdom operation wave that they had already used to some extent in 1998 against the American embassies in Nairobi and Dar es Salaam and also against the uh, USS Cole uh, in 2000 in uh, Aden and also that they should aim at what they call the faraway enemy i.e. America so as to expose its weakness to show that it was a giant with clay feet and that Muslim people who did not dare revolt against their apostate leaders should not fear because the protector of those leaders America was doomed to failure and by the same token as Hezbollah the micro Hezbollah had managed to pull back the mighty Israeli army a few heroes the magnific magnificent 19 as um, um, this um, Mujahideen guy in, who left Britain um, who's now on holidays extended holidays in Lebanon who lectured from this pulpit a number of times um, Yes, Omar Bakri Muhammad, yes, who was my predecessor at this pulpit when, when LSC was more radical than it is now. Um, as, he, uh, as he said so many times, the Magnificent 19 managed to, uh, uh, to, to defeat uh, and to, uh, the, the superpower America. So, who... Um, um, this was also something that the Obama narrative had to take into account. He could not sort of just say that changing the rhetorics was enough and that uh, he, um, he had the capacity uh, to have a, a a policy that was structurally different from his predecessor. Now, let us try to to analyze, and uh, <coughs> as these are things which are happening right now, I mean, I'll, uh, I won't be too long, and I'll I'll be glad to um, to have a longer Q and A session that we usually have, so that we we can discuss all together this uh, matter because there is very little knowledge spread even amongst the actors who do not necessarily know what they are doing. If we want to analyze uh, Obama's um, attitude or policy, maybe the, the most important starting point is the Cairo speech of um, last June, June last year. It was not his first speech on or from the Muslim world. He had mentioned uh, the Muslim world in, uh, in Europe, in uh, Strasbourg and uh, among the things. He had discussed uh, the Muslim world also in, um, in, uh, in Turkey. But then the Cairo speech 
that was made in the most numerous, the most populated Sunni Arab Muslim country in the Middle East, Egypt, where the sort of most ancient um, citadel of Islam, the Al-Azhar Mosque and University stood, was of course something extremely important. Now, even in the choice of terms which I use to describe Cairo, you may feel that there is a hint at the fact that things were slightly more complicated than Obama said when he praised everything Muslim in his speech as if he wanted to just utter the opposite not only of what George Bush had said or had done, but also of what people thought, people in the Muslim world, thought Bush had said or done. And um, to cut a long story short, Obama praised the contribution of Islam to the world, uh, said that the Quran was a great book, and and so on and so forth, that Islam was a religion of peace. I mean, the usual um, talk about uh, religions. And something more interesting, and uh, maybe uh, that was really new, was that he made of Islam an American religion. And uh, that is to say that he insisted on the fact that many Muslims had contributed to America. Maybe he underlined or he overemphasized that a little, saying that, that you know, because Bush had demonized everything Islamic uh, so much and had him and his advisors had used expressions such as Islamofascism and things like that that uh, were deemed offensive by a number of people uh, in the Muslim world. So what I believe was the probably the most important contribution of his speech was that he insisted on the fact that together with um, the various Protestant sects, with Catholicism, Judaism, and so on and so forth, Islam was now, and was for good, a religion that belonged to America, that it was not foreign anymore, right? Something which was new and which had never been said before, and uh, which, um, in a way, was a very strong message, all the more so as it was carried by the first black, if you see him from a white point of view, or white if you see him from a black point of view, 
uh, President of the United States, who himself bore a Muslim name due to the fact that his father was a Kenyan Muslim, and uh, Barak, which is Swahili for Mubarak, just like the President of Egypt, i.e. Uh, uh, Benedict, if you wish, uh, Hussein, which is uh, who is the the grandson of Prophet Muhammad and the and the, the founding father of uh, of uh, Shia religiosity, and Obama, which is not a um, Muslim word, but which in Farsi, in the Farsi language, in colloquial Farsi, means he is with us. So the blessed Hussein is with us, which of course was a great asset to address and mobilize uh, the Iranian masses. And um, the, um, the issue for Obama was twofold or threefold. The first one was to address the Palestine-Israel issue. And in his Cairo speech, he uh, condemned in very harsh words for the first time in the mouth of an American president. It had been condemned but in the past, but never with such strong language the building of the, in the extension of settlements in the West Bank by uh, Israel. And as you know, that led to angry demonstrations of the settlers, many of them, I have to say, from uh, French North African descent who were fleeing France because they thought that they watched Fox News a little too much, maybe, and they thought that France was being submerged by Osama bin Laden in the Banlieue, and um, who had fled to the settlement colonies and then who demonstrated with signs saying, Hussein Obama, uh, shame to you, and what have you. Um, and there was a strong feeling in the, in the Arab and Muslim world then that those words were to be put into action. The uh, Israel-Palestine file was given to veteran Senator George Mitchell, someone who was not, still is not Jewish, who's Irish, which may be even more complicated to deal with a fragmented situation or more simple. I mean. I will take no sides on this difficult question in, in Britain. And, um, but it meant that the Israeli peace process was not under the control of the pro-Israel lobby in Washington, whether it be extremist or centrist. And uh, as you know, under Clinton, the Israeli peace process was under the control of 
say a pro-peace um, labor, if I may say so, um, pro-Israelis, whereas under Bush it was, well, there was no more peace process, but the Israeli question, the Palestine question, was controlled by um, Beltway Likudniks. So that was a sign that was interpreted uh, favorably in the Arab world and unfavorably, of course, in Israel. Bibi Netanyahu did not really react because he thought that time was on his side and that Obama could not deliver on that issue. <coughs> and to a large extent, I believe that the Obama administration wanted to set the record straight as far as Israel was concerned, but did not think that they had a major clout on that, even though one may believe that Israel cannot survive if not for the, the American lifeline. There are a few reasons to doubt that nowadays. One is that Israel has become a thriving service economy, which give, gives it some leeway, and unless there is war, uh, like uh, what happened in the 1973 when there was this uh, military airlift from the U.S. to Israel. Uh, an Israeli government in the 2000s, 2010, 2010s, doesn't have to abide by American orders on the minutes for fear of survival. It can buy time. B, something which has not been taken into consideration by a number of um, observers and um, which is becoming of more and more importance. As you know, there is a very important part of the Israeli population now which is from Russian origin. And there is a very significant pro-Israeli lobby now in Moscow. Uh, which is composed of um, a number of people, of uh, um, some of them very powerful oligarchs, who have access to power circles, Putin essentially, and Medvedev to some extent, who share with him the fear that Russia is threatened on its southern borders by Islam, by Chechens, by uh, Dagestanis, by uh, Azeris, by who, what have you. And um, um, one of the people who took part in, the, in a meeting with, between Sharon and Putin in, uh, in Moscow, when Sharon was still around, uh, reported that uh, both shared their common um, Distaste, distaste for um, their um, Islamic environment 
and their uh, common thread. So, even though you know there is some distance taken by an American government today vis-a-vis -vis Israel because of Israel's own resources because of the fact that another major power which is not a superpower but which is rich which is a petrol monarchy uh, Russia can stand on the side of Israel when necessary or parts of it, rich parts of it is also something that brings time and Russian Jews are usually not of the labor type right? and when you think of the, the two um, uh, Russian Jewish parties uh, Israel Betenu uh, and the other uh, what's the name? Israel B something um, you know they're on the extreme right of the um, of the Israeli political chessboard third element while Obama was pushing for this change of language at least in the Israeli-American relations and Israeli-Palestinian relations he was also embarking on domestic on a domestic policy issue which would prove extremely dangerous the social security and health reform problem which would not give him a lot of leeway for political maneuvers after a few months. So my belief is that this is something that to a large extent they knew in the White House and they thought and that was something they did early on before the, uh, the Cairo speech in June they thought that the uh, soft point in the system of crises that constitute the Middle East, i.e. the Levant crisis, the Palestinian-Israeli crisis, the Gulf crisis, the oil, Shia, Sunni, Iran, Arabs crisis, and the AFPAC, as they say in the Beltway crisis, the Taliban uh, of Afghanistan Pakistan crisis now the soft point in where they should what they should start with was Iran there were elections in Iran that were to take place in uh, in June <coughs> last year and the Obama bet the Obama team bet was that there was to be change in Iran and that as opposed to Bush the Bush administration policy that was in favor and was um, was adamant about regime change in Iran the Obama administration would talk about behavior change that is to say that 
they were not interested in toppling the whole Islamic Republic system, but they were interested in replacing the radical factions around Ahmadinejad, the Pasdaran, the Revolutionary Guards, and so on and so forth, the ones, the, the sort of Camorista entrepreneurs who are now around Ahmadinejad, by the sort of reformist uh, wing uh, headed by Rafsanjani, uh, Khatami, and the like, who were keen to cut a deal with the U.S. in order to stay in power. And that would mean that Iran would not uh, go on with its nuclear blackmail, that Iran would stop um, pushing Hezbollah to be a major irritant against Israel, and uh, that Iran would also uh, stop uh, its verbal assaults against its neighbors, that it would secure American troops pull out from Iraq. And that change in Iran was the major hope of the Obama administration. This is why he uh, sent a message on the occasion of Nowruz, of the uh, Iranian New Year, to the people of the Islamic Republic of Iran, a language that had never, be, never been used before in uh, the spring. Nowruz is on the 21st of March, just a spring festival, which is not Islamic at all, but it doesn't matter. And, um, and so on and so forth. This, I believe, in retrospect, was probably a failure, a mistake, sorry. A mistake because they, um, uh, by giving so many signs that they were backing the so-called reformists who uh, then would engineer the tentative green revolution, something that looked a little like the orange revolution or the purple revolution or the whatever colored revolution that the CIA had engineered in a number of former Eastern European countries. The Obama team sent signals that frightened two categories of people. On the one hand, in Iran itself, it sent panic waves in the ranks of the, of the um, Ahmadinejad people, who, through their control of the Revolutionary Guards, decided that they had to join ranks at any cost so as to avoid any victory by pro-American reformists. And um, they mobilized. They spent um, a lot of money on uh, buying votes. They distributed subsidies uh, uh, everywhere. And in my view, they probably won even without cheating. But they cheated because they needed to show that they had won a landslide victory, which is probably not what happened. 
But there again, you had a policy where the effet d'annonce, as we say in French, the uh, sort of uh, announcing uh, uh, dimension, was counterproductive. To some extent, when we compare it in retrospect with, with the substance and the consequences of the Cairo speech, which ran parallel to the, to the effects of the, of the Cairo speech. B, this uh, open-hand policy towards Iran send signals to the Sunni neighbors of Iran, many of them close allies of the U.S., that after all Obama was just Bush with a uh, colored face, i.e. that Obama was again playing the Shia cards in a more subtle way than Bush had been playing the Shia card. As I told you earlier on, the neocons had considered that the Shias were actually, uh, if you wish, the good Muslims, as opposed to the Sunnis were the bad Muslims. And, well, after all, if Obama made all those signs saying that to the vibrant and uh, thriving uh, Iranian civil society and so on and so forth, it meant that the Middle East being what it is, it sends signals to the countries that were on the other side of the Persian Gulf then, that they were on the wrong side of that Persian Gulf. And um, so there was, at the time, you, you could see a number of articles in the Arab language press, in the Gulf, in the uh, in Egypt, in, in Jordan, and so on and so forth, uh, which were vehemently attack attacking Obama, saying that he understood nothing to the region, and so on and so forth. <coughs> and this is why, I believe, he chose Cairo to make his speech, among other things, because he wanted to send a signal to the Sunni Arabs choosing Cairo as the Sunni Arab metropolis for his speech was important to try to um, dissipate this feeling that he was um, giving too much to the Iranians and the Shias. Why would he choose or why would he have chosen Iran, because he believed, and his, his advisors believed, I think, that had Rafsanjani or Musavi or the others been in charge, they would have been eager to cut a deal with the U.S. because uh, the present policy of Ahmadinejad is suicidal, uh, because Iran is going to be stricken by poverty. Uh, whereas a deal with the U.S. would mean that uh, electronic machinery, technology, and whatever 
would come to Iran, embargo and sanctions would be lifted. And as you know, Iran exports now less oil than it did in the time of the Shah. Not because the, the oil reserves are depleted, but because they just don't have the technology. And they have to import most of their gas, or their gasoline for the cars, because they don't have the refineries, because they don't have the, 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 the technology for the refineries. So, this was, I mean, in the Obama team's view, this was a good deal for the so-called reformists, because then they could stay in power. But the tit-for-tat was that they would stop fueling Hezbollah and that they would allow for a secure pullout of U.S. troops in Iraq. So that one of the main objectives of the American voters, i.e. bring the boys back home, would be implemented without any serious feeling that it was a defeat for America. You know, what was extremely important was to bring the boys back home without those kind of images of 1975 when the Marines had to leave the American embassy in what was then Saigon with a flag under their um, their arms and were evacuated via helicopter, which was a terrible sign of, of U.S. Uh, defeat, if you wish. And in Iraq, Shia militias are definitely the strongest power broker. I was in Baghdad uh, three weeks ago, and uh, I was stunned by the fact that uh, the city is now completely, I mean, the completely Shiite, if you want, in its, uh, in its appearance. Well, it was, it was the Arba'in, that is to say, the, the 40th day after Ashura, after the, after the, Muslim celebration of the Hijirian calendar celebration of the death and martyrdom of Imam Hussein. And on the 40th day after that death, devout Shias in Iraq go to Karbala, which is the Jerusalem or the Golgotha of the Shiites, if you want, on foot, uh, clad in black, in order to mourn Hussein. So it is a time when Shiite piety is particularly visible, but under Saddam Hussein this was strictly forbidden. And the first Arba'in actually took place right after the Americans um, invaded or liberated, whatever you choose, Baghdad in uh, March 2003. On uh, Ashura Baghdad was still under Saddam Hussein's rule. Forty days later, Saddam Hussein had been ousted, and the first mass demonstration that took place in free pro-U.S. Uh, uh, 
Iraq, so it was thought at the time in the Beltway, with this huge demonstration of millions of people, millions of Shia, who uh, stormed the streets and the roads to go to Karbala. Now this is a time when you have flags with uh, the portrait of Imam Hussein everywhere, uh, who's a sort of Christ-like fig Christ figure with his head full of blood and thorns looking up and you also have uh, portraits of him like who in a sort of Saint Sebastian figure uh, pierced with arrows and um, and you couldn't but think that you know nowadays uh, the Shia majority of Iraq had really uh, taken control if not of the whole society, at least of uh, um, everything that was visible. And uh, that means that in order for U.S. troops to pull back, they have to be sure that Shia militias are quiet. When I was there, there were endless um, deflagrations at night, uh, this group bombing that group, some of them were burglaries, others were criminal things, but some of them were also militias fighting against each other. And um, uh, in the preparation for the parliamentary elections in uh, Iraq on uh, 15, 15 days, on Sunday, March 7th, Groups are fighting, not only Sunnis against Shias, but Shias against Shias, pro-Iranian Shias, headed by former CIA agent Ahmed Chalabi, who's now turned as a pro-Shia uh, person. No, seuls les imbéciles ne changent pas, as we say in French. And, um, and Maliki, the present prime minister, who's more of a... Um, nationalist, Iraqi nationalist Shia, if you wish. This, of course, is a major liability for the U.S. presidency, whoever is president. And uh, U.S. troops are not visible anymore in Baghdad today. I mean, you don't see an American soldier at all. You see American tanks that were given to the Iraqis and repainted by them. You, uh, you have... Um, checkpoints everywhere and uh, so they have they are clad in their barracks but it's it's going if they leave a country in complete chaos uh, this is definitely not in as of June because they're gonna they're gonna start the redeployment the major redeployment in June this is not at all going to be put to the credit of whoever is president at the time when the, when the troops leave, even though he was not the one who sent the troops originally. But then there was another option that Obama wanted to give to the Iranians or to the right Iranians, to the Iranians of his choice, had they been elected. 
and that was to rid them of a major worry that Iran has on its eastern border where there already had been some collaboration between Iranians and um, and the US administration even under George Bush Jr. that is the Afghanistan question the Afghanistan issue Iran had allowed for US planes bombing the Taliban to fly over its territory in the fall of 2001 Iran was present at the Bonn conference in late in December 2001 that was working for the reconciliation of uh, Afghanistan and at the time a number of uh, Iranian ministers and that was then vehemently denounced by Al-Qaeda and Zawahiri in some of his other tapes he aired made offers to the US to um, <coughs> cooperate with them against what they called the danger of Sunni extremism what they got what Khatami and others who had gone a long way to get close to the US and make an offer something which was very dangerous for them on the domestic political scene of course what they got as an answer was a slap in the face when W on his State of the Union address in January of, of 2002 had the famous axis of evil speech where Iraq, Iran, and North Korea were the three um, enemies of mankind. So from that on, if you wish, Khatami was, um, had lost his international credibility from his domestic uh, Islamic Republic point of view and uh, he was uh, he was doomed to lose the election and to, to lose the support of the apparatus of the, of the bureaucracy. Obama came back on that and thought that there was a possibility to make to cut another deal with the Iranians i.e. that if the US used force together with NATO in Afghanistan to destroy Taliban fighters who are not only West haters but also Shiite haters and who were um, uh, pushing unrest in Iran's eastern province, Baluchistan, which is peopled in part by Sunnis, 
and you may remember that a few months ago there were major bombings in uh, Baluchistan perpetrated by Sunni groups coming from Pakistan, from the Pakistani part of Baluchistan, against senior Iranian intelligence people. That was an interesting deal, or could have been an interesting deal. And there again, the whole issue was to start with Iran and, you know, to sort of engineer a, a virtuous domino game theory. The behavior change in Iran would lead to peaceful pullouts for U.S. troops from Iraq, would lead to uh, uh, Hezbollah getting cool and threatening Israel far less, Hamas having less support from Iran, therefore making it easier to cut a deal with the Israeli government. And finally, the third element of this policy, which was originally thought and, dis and described by uh, Vice President Biden, was that they had to go back to the, the origins of the war on terrorism, not of terror, and uh, try to understand where it had gone wrong, wrong to put it back on the right track. It was okay to track, to chase the, the Taliban, the Al-Qaeda people and the like. But due to the fact that there was this policy shift towards Iraq, then there were no troops left to A, secure the military victory against the Taliban and reinforce the, the Afghan regime, B, to um, um, to, to destroy Al-Qaeda. So Biden's view was that what had to be done was to nip in the bud what remained of Al-Qaeda, the few hundred people that remained. <coughs> and that is something that you could sell to the American electorate very well it would be a real victory if you brought the, he the head, the, uh, the tail, and the ears of Osama bin Laden and Ayman al-Zawahiri to the electorate. That would really be something that would count for the midterm elections. But then there was another mistake <coughs> that was made, in my view, that is that it's not so much Al-Qaeda or the few hundreds of Al-Qaeda people who counted, that counted, but the fact that Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan and in Pakistan on, on the borderline, in the Durand line, are protected by a grassroots movement 
which is the Taliban. That the Taliban are quintessentially Pashtun. They are part and parcel of the local population. And that it's extremely difficult for NATO soldiers to be perceived as liberators when the Taliban all have brothers, uh, uncles, cousins, sisters, and, and so on and so forth in the villages which are quote-unquote pacified. And that led to the inexorable situation in which NATO forces find themselves, as you know, in Afghanistan today. So, uh, the um, as of now, the the outcome of of this policy is not that great. I mean, one may uh, consider, like uh, Professor, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm through Ashton that he went up the hill and then went down the hill, or as my colleague Professor Gregory Goss said once that it was back to the future. Uh, but I believe that there was one thing which uh, probably was mistaken, that was that there was this belief that words could change a situation. Well, Bush talked a lot, or had his people talk, and it, it antagonized people, but uh, words do not count, except if they are offensive, particularly in the Middle East. B, the policy choice, which I think was the one uh, personally I would identify, that was an Iran-first policy, failed when Ahmadinejad was re-elected, when the demonstration was were brutally put down and so on and so forth, and there was no plan B. And in the meanwhile, domest the domestic agenda has taken over, and um, the Israelis do not have anything to do anymore. Secretary, Clint Secretary Clinton went to um, Israel and Palestine the other day and made no objection to uh, Bibi Netanyahu's policy. So we have uh, uh, a Gulliver in, uh, in the Middle East which is now um, taken in his own net, if you want, which leaves it open, but this will be for the lectures of the, of the future, for uh, other players to take a part in the Middle East. And uh, probably first and foremost among them, but uh, it's difficult to be optimistic considering the state of the leadership of the Union, the European Union, which is because of its proximity, because of its wealth, because of its policies, definitely, which has to to engage the Middle East issues, but 
which shies off doing it for the time being. I will stop here because Professor Ashton, being a specialized specialist of the Arab Legion in uh, Jordan, uh, knows what time means and discipline means. So I will not risk his wrath. And I would like to thank you for listening to this, uh, not the last talk, or neither the last supper, but uh, and uh, be patient enough to listen to my broken frog's English. Thank you. because of age, my age, not yours. <laughs> right. Thank you. I'd like to pick up your point about the European Union. Uh, you raise a question of what the European Union might uh, do to uh, take the initiative in the, um, in the Middle East over Israel and Palestine. One thought that occurred to me uh, some years ago uh, is that uh, a way for the European Union to seize the initiative would be to offer membership of the European Union to a state of Israel and a state of uh, Palestine and all that might follow from that. Um, this, uh, be, you know, before one dismisses that, I, I remember reading uh, a piece in the FT that recorded Shimon Peres advocating that solution. So what do you think are the prospects of an imaginative approach of that kind? Yes, my name is Alex Ratzner. I'm former head of information systems at Bank for International Settlements in Switzerland. Uh, I'm, uh, I was struck by uh, the, uh, the, the contrast between uh, your introductory speech that started off with saying the core problem in the Middle East uh, and your speech where there was a whole range of, of, of issues that, that you outlined, uh, which is a view that I often see in, in, uh, with policymakers in Europe more reflected, while the view about the core conflict is something that I hear again and again when I come to, to the UK. Uh, what do you mean exactly? The core conflict being the U.S. the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, mm -hmm. uh, and there seems to be the feeling that unless the Israeli-Palestinian here, uh, when I hear it right from policymakers, that unless that conflict is addressed first, uh, everything else uh, cannot fall into place, and if it is addressed first, then other things might fall into place more easily by the by the Americans. And the question is, do you, do you see it that way, or do you see a more uh, simultaneous 
addressing of several conflicts with not one being designated as a core conflict. Okay. Okay. Yeah, or a third one if you want. It's Another gentleman at the back there, the white. Hello. Uh, I would like to ask a question about Iran. Uh, about Iran, yeah. How do, you, like, due to hostility of Shia to Sunnah, how do you explain the support of Iran to Hamas? Why Iran supports Hamas? Yeah, I mean the, the hostility of Shia to Sunnah, so they are both like on both. Okay, I'll take those three. Okay, fine. Um, well, uh, no offense meant to the FT or to Shimon Peres, but I uh, do not think that this should be taken seriously, as if we didn't have enough problems already to uh, <laughs> have Israel and Palestine in the European <laughs> Union. Astaghfirullah, as we say in Arabic. British might advocate I that, I ask uh, forgiveness to Allah for that. Uh, the, um, um, uh, well, as uh, Lord Patton once said with his uh, usual sense of British humor, what we think in France is British humor. Um, he said that uh, in whichever war, was it in the Second Intifada or something, when Israeli tanks would destroy everything uh, visible, uh, which looked like um, public building in the, in the West Bank, he made this remark that uh, tanks paid for in dollars destroyed uh, buildings and uh, infrastructures paid for in euros. Uh, he did not mention the British pound, of course, and um, which is quite right, i.e., the European Union is already there. They don't have to be in the European Union because the Union is there already, not only because it is paying, and as Condi had it, um, once when she was en verve, she said, uh, well, in the Middle East, as you know, the Americans do the cuisine and the, uh, the Europeans do the dishes. You can imagine that for a, a Frenchman this was an insult, that uh, <laughs> the hamburger people uh, dared say something like that. But the... Uh, the um, um, it is not true, well, it is true that there is no um, EU policy per se. It is not implemented, but there is an EU financial policy. And the, um, not only because um, the EU is financing most of the salaries of the Palestinian Authority, which are now being frozen so that they don't go to Hamas. But also, the EU is favoring uh, the export of Israeli uh, products, and particularly Israeli software, because it has the clause of the most favored nation. So we are around. I mean, we, we have a, a significant weight, economic weight, which is not used. B. The Israeli-Palestinian dispute is already there in the EU, and uh, you know when uh, the 
Operation Cost Lead took place in the beginning of uh, last year, the end of the year before. <coughs> the, uh, um, in, uh, in all the playing fields of the medium schools in uh, uh, the French banlieues, this is the only word in French that doesn't need translating now. I mean, once upon a time, we thought that champagne and parfum were the words that you would not translate. Now it's value. And um, where we have kids from uh, Jewish and Muslim descent, because as you know, France is the biggest, is the biggest everything, of course, but is the biggest Muslim and Jewish country in Western Europe. So we are particularly careful and interested in what happens there so that it does not translate into social turmoil. Uh, well, you would, you would necessarily have a fight between the kids of the two different um, confessions. And um, so for us as EU uh, members, and for France in particular, but for Britain also, though under slightly different forms, uh, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is an EU domestic political issue. So we do not need to have them formally in the Union. Think of the debate about Turkey in the Union, for instance, um, to, uh, to have them already politically in the Union. What I believe is that um, what has to be done is to use financial clout uh, with a view to have a policy. And this is what is lacking in Brussels for the time being. But, and the fact that we now have three presidents, Barroso, Zapatero, and uh, Van Rompuy is, does not help because uh, each one is trying to check what the other does. So um, it is not really a good thing to do. Now, is the Palestinian-Israeli dispute the core dispute that has to be settled first and then no otherwise nothing will happen? Or are other issues going to be dealt with first that will then influence on the Israeli-Palestinian issue? This is a major question, of course, that is answered differently whether you're an Arab or, or an Israeli. Uh, all along the uh, Bush administration, the pro-Israel lobby explained that this Palestinian-Israeli question was totally secondary to Middle Eastern issues, and that uh, <coughs> Iraq was far more important, and the Gulf was more important, and, uh, and um, after all, this Israeli-Palestinian question was an issue of terrorism, and, uh, and um, what so. Whereas in the Arab world, the uh, Palestinian issue, and in the Muslim world, per se, has acquired a sort of, um, how should I say, uh, uh, a mythical dimension uh, in the sense that it is something that defines identity, that makes people in Jakarta demonstrate, for instance. They've never been to Palestine, but they hardly know where it is, but they know, they feel that they are attacked as Muslims when someone is killed in Gaza. So it has a symbolic value which is extremely important. 
to recognize that, and, and I think that this is, it is a social fact, whether or not we like it or we think it should be otherwise or it's of no importance here, it is a social fact. Uh, does not mean that the other issues are of no importance. In my view, uh, the Palestinian-Israeli dispute is of prime symbolic importance, but the Gulf crisis is far more important politically and economically because the stakes are far higher. If the Straits of Hormuz are blocked, you're going to have to walk to LSC next time. Not to worry, I'll, I'm not going to give any more lecture this year, so you can stay at home. But the um, um, and this is where you have a country which is threatening to use nuclear power. Iran, or Iran, as they say in the Midwest. And um, um, and this is why, probably, why the Bush, ad the Obama administration was, you know, was not totally behind the curve when they thought that they should, they should, you know, say what they have to say on the Israeli-Palestinian issue, but then try to unblock the whole, uh, the whole. Uh, Riddle, is that what you say in English? So as to starting with the, you know, pulling the Iranian thread and the whole thing with uh, would un, whatever you say in English, um, untie, would be untied. But he failed because it, he underestimated the resilience of the Iranian uh, military industrial mafioso or camarista, if you wish, structure, which is now stronger, the Revolutionary Guards, which I believe are now much stronger than the clerical networks. Three, why does Iran, which is a Shia country, back Hamas, which is a Sunni Islamist movement? Well, because Iran, for um, reasons that have to do with geopolitics needs to use cards on the other axis of crisis, i.e. it is circumscribed in his own area, the Gulf, by hostile uh, Sunni countries. But if it can way on the Israeli-Palestinian scene, then it allows him, it allows it to, to have more, much more leeway or much more bargaining power. When Iran, through Hezbollah, compels Israel to pull out from South Lebanon, the Hezbollah people, Hassan Nasrallah and the others, and their Iranian friends, are the heroes of the Muslim street, from uh, uh, Leeds to Jakarta.
right? And this, of course, is something which is extremely important for Iranians in their bid to be considered the leaders of the Muslim world, in spite of the fact that Shias are only 15%, but this is a stone, or a, as we say in French, in the garden of their Sunni contenders for power. When Israel did not manage to to win any significant victory in the 33-day war in the summer of 2006, Hassan Nasrallah was considered the superhero of the Muslim masses. And his speeches uh, on Al Jazeera were watched by everyone, even the, the ones who hated the Shias or all the secularists. And uh, the collateral victim of that was poor Osama bin Laden, who really found himself in the back seat. Okay, we may just have time for one more, maybe up in the uh, gallery there. Thank you. Um, thank you very much. I want maybe you can address the recent um, developments between Iran and Syria. They're signing military pacts uh, and have sort of a military understanding. How do you view um, the conflict in the Middle East in the sense of of the next violent clash would be a, um, an all-out war, a regional one, uh, beca because of these pacts uh, signed? I mean, and also how do you view the Shiite Iranian signing the pact with the, with the uh, Sunni Syrians, uh, Alawi, but how do you view it? Okay, we'll just take that one because we're right out of time, so maybe just a brief answer on that. Too. Very brief. Uh, Syria may be Sunni in terms of the majority of its population, but politically it is controlled by a minority, which is Alawi, and which belongs to a sort of divergent Shia sect, but which is Shia all the same. And uh, for the Syrian regime, the alliance with Iran is crucial because it allows the Syrians to have a significant bargaining power when, we, when they deal with the Saudis, with the Israelis, and with the West in general. I mean, there is no eternal love between Syria and Iran. The day Bashar al-Assad believes that it's better for him to, to play a Western card, he will. But for the time being, he thinks that it's, uh, it's okay to have an Iranian alliance because uh, this is the way he can raise the price of the carpets to the maximum. And on that note, um, let me just make a couple of uh, business announcements before we offer Gilles our uh, thanks for uh, his comments tonight. Um, just to announce, first of all, Gilles' successor, I'm not trying to usher you out, Gilles, but uh, okay, I've just been I'm asked I'm to announce leave. who your successor is. Uh, it's Professor Neil Ferguson, um, extremely well-known historian, a string of publications uh, the Ascent of Money, Colossus, uh, Empire, How Britain Made the Modern World. Uh, he will be the next Philippe Roman uh, Chair of History and International Affairs, taking up the position uh, from September. So we very much look forward to welcoming him then. 
Uh, another business announcement, we've all become businessmen now. We are, um, we have on offer outside uh, a couple of our ideas, publications, the Ideas Magazine, and also our uh, special Obama Nation report. So please do avail yourself of the opportunity to look at and purchase those as well. And the final comments to end on the appropriate notice, thank Gilles very much for his uh, enlivening and uh, informative comments uh, this evening. Thank you.